This is an ABC podcast. Favel Parrott is an Australian author. Her most recent novel is told through the eyes of two children, a girl and a boy who live in different cities. One lives in Melbourne, the other in Prague. They're cousins who've never met each other, and they're both happy kids, largely because of the love and care bestowed on them by their wonderful grandmothers. The story is based on Favel's Czech grandmother, Mitzi, whom she adored, and Mitzi's sister, who stayed behind in the old country. The sisters were separated as teenagers, first by the looming Nazi invasion of Prague, and then by the Stalinist regime that was set up there after the war. Mitzi never got over having to leave her family behind, and so when she came to Melbourne, she set up her apartment like a miniature Prague to hold all her memories of the world's most beautiful city. Favel Parrot's novel is called There Was Still Love. Hi, Favel. Hi. There's a picture of a little red fox on the cover of your book. Is that you? It is me. Um because of my red hair. Mm -hmm. My grandpa actually called me Bloodnut, but for this book, (laughs) we decided to nickname me Little Fox. (laughs) Okay. Is that a phrase that's often used for the redhead? Yes. Little Fox. I wish I could remember how that is in the Czech, but that's what's Malaliska. 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 That's you. Malaliska. Your grandmother's name was Mitzi. Was that her formal name or her nickname? She was Marie, and Mitzi was her nickname. But as you'd know, Richard, Czech people have... So many nicknames, and when you're young, that the names are softened. So if you're, if my name was Dana as a child, my name would be Danushka, and as you grow, then you become Dana. But there's lots of names. So my grandma was Manya, Marushka, Mitzi, Marie. There's, it goes on. Oh, many that's lovely. Names. That's nice. Yeah, it took me a long while to realise that Jan, which is John, the the nickname for that is Honza, and I don't know how you get that <laughs> from Jan. Everyone's called Honza, and I don't, I don't know how that works. <laughs> How much time did you spend with your grandparents while you were living? A lot. Um, I think from, you know, the, the day I was born to about seven years old when I moved to Hobart with my mum, we were at that flat a lot. It felt like my first home, really, this beautiful Art Deco flat on the third floor that was Prague. I knew Prague, Prague from the, 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 the my first memories um, are Prague, looking at this tapestry of a castle and a river and the bridges of this city that was alive and real in this flat. My grandma's Czech cooking, the way she dressed, the way she was so Czech, her accent that never left her very strong accent, the doily on the TV, the lace curtains. When I visited her sister... Um, in 1993, I was so surprised to walk into the exact same flat, but in Prague. <laughs> the same things, the same decor. Amazing. When I, when I was little, my parents had friends who were artists, and so we had art on the walls. And I used to zone out staring at those pictures, and I know exactly how they look now. Even now, after, uh, from when I was looking at them when I was seven years old, I think. Do you have the same feeling about that big tapestry of Prague? I sure do. And the first time I saw that exact view for real in Prague, I wept. I knew it. I knew the streets. I knew the way because of that flat. Um, somehow, and my brother feels the same, somehow that view um, of the castle and the river and the bridges has been with me. It's in my cells. I, I know it. I love it. It's, um, yeah, we used to 
just stare at it. And we used, and my grandpa would have classical music playing and yeah, we would sail around in our little spaceships, which were stools turned upside down and just daydream and Prague was there watching over us. See, for pe- people like me who, who had no family connection to that city or that place, the first time I went there in, when the Velvet Revolution was happening there, I had this powerful sense of homecoming, which I thought was, oh, wh- wh- why would I have this? Why would I have this feeling? It took me a long while to locate it. And what I realised was that is the, the landscape of that city is the landscape of all the old folk tales I had as a child. Absolutely. I grew up in a modern Western city, you know, with steel, glass, concrete, and what have you. But this is the landscape you have in your childhood from the folk tales you get and you leave it behind when you become an adult and when you walk into that city you go this is odd sense of homecoming and not only folk tales but christmas carols good, good king, king Wenceslas. Wenceslas. so th- there's so much yeah and i agree i felt the same and i felt like i could see my grandma everywhere and i could smell her and i knew the city it was, it's a beautiful feeling. Did you have a lot of little Czech knickknacks? Yes, yes. So many. I don't know what it is with them, but I think all Bubbies have them in, in the Czech Republic or wherever they are in is, the world. Is Bubby the word for grandmother? Yeah, Babička. So Bubby is the small, it's short and like Nan. What was the food your grandmother was always making? She was such a good cook. Everything was Czech. So there was Svičkova, which is the thick soup with cream and you poach meat inside it and then... And um, you slice the meat and you have bread dumplings and pour the soup over everything. Uh, chicken schnitzel salad, which is cucumbers in cream. Is <laughs> That's it cream a with everything? salad, yes. Right. Um, carrots cooked in butter, cabbage cooked in butter, everything. She could get us to eat any vegetable, which we would never eat at home, but because it was so much butter and honey and everything tasted good. And then Czech dessert is, you know, say uh, fruit dumplings, so apricot dumplings, and then poured on top, melted butter, sugar, and cottage cheese. That's a uh, Czech dessert. It's incredibly <laughs> delicious. delicious, all the food, <laughs> yeah. which is, it's amazing that anyone lives past the age of 50 <laughs> while they eat it, but it is, it is fabulously tasty it food. It is so yes. good. Tell me how you used to help your grandmother get dressed in the morning. Now, the, the daily routine at, at the flat is something that I will never forget, and um <laughs> My grandpa would be asleep because he was a night watchman um, at the time. So he'd be sleeping, so he'd have to be quiet. And my grandma would come in with her girdle sort of pulled up but not completely on. And um, she'd say, pull me up, pull me up. And we'd stand on the couch and pull, pull. And we'd be shoving rolls of fat literally into this, like, material. And eventually she's, like, done up. She's got her armour on and she'd pad off and then we'd hear the hairspray, shh going forever and that was her beehive you know (laughs) setting the beehive more armor then her polyester 70s dresses that were just really radical colors and um her makeup and then she'd be ready we'd go to the market and this was the daily routine so we'd walk she'd hold our hands we'd carry the check cloth bags that zipped up and We'd go to the market and the, every stallholder knew us. And um, at every deli, my grandma would say, give them some. And they'd give us a bit of sausage or a bit of cheese. And she was so smart because that was our morning tea <laughs> done. And then she'd buy the rolls, the bread, tobacco for my grandpa, Nova Gherkins maybe, or um, cheese, some Parisa sausage. And then we'd go home. 
My grandpa would just be waking up and we'd share this lunch together, a roll each with cheese and sausage, a gherkin on the side, one for me, one for my grandma and one for my grandpa. And that was the routine. So beautiful. Was she an awesome physical presence? Like she this, was this very... big woman in a girdle <laughs> and a smooth polyester dress and a, and, a, and a lacquered beehive. She could not hide. She also had giant cheekbones. She was a striking woman, ha- handsome. Uh, her face was... I feel like her face could withstand anything. She had one of those faces that nothing could break. And um, her accent, her gold and garnet earrings, everything was checked. She couldn't hide it. And she didn't try, actually, the way she dressed. And I loved that about her. She was the tallest person in her family as really? well. Really? Right. Yes, oh, she's so a she, tall person. She was tall? Yes. Oh, my God. Right. So, I know. So, we were, I suppose, people that she'd cut a swathe through anything crap yes. she, she'd walk through. Yes. Um, did she work? Did she have a job in the she, When she first came to Australia in the 70s, she did work as a cook. I think it was somewhere like David Jones or Meyer in the big food hall. But by the time I knew her, 74, she wasn't working anymore. And my grandpa was a night watchman and they were living on the pension. So things were pretty tight. They would save their coins to buy tickets home to Prague. Saving coins for a, a plane ticket I know, to and it would, take, like, it would take them three or four years to get the cheapest tickets. So that route that, you know, is 48 hours where you're stopping everywhere – but they were just wanted to go and they would just go and stay with relatives for eight weeks of the summer in um, Prague and then come home. So they could only do that every three or four years. That's how tight money was. By saving coins I know, in a I know. It's quite something. To get the 48-hour flight via Bangkok, <laughs> yes, Bombay, everywhere. Dubai, Frankfurt and Egypt, everywhere else. I mean, Egypt, the, right. These routes that they'd go. Was, and my grandpa hated flying. So <laughs> it was really something. <laughs> But that's how much they wanted, my grandma wanted to go home. Did you have one of those kind of classic Czech black senses of humour? Oh, yes. I mean, you understand Czech humour. I'll tell you a funny story. When I went to Prague in 93, my grandma had passed away. Her sister was still alive. And um, I had forgotten my Czech and she had forgotten her English. And we're sitting across from each other in her flat. She's chain smoking Russian cigarettes. And I'm trying to make conversation. I'm saying, how's cousin blah blah and she's like dead (laughs) then the next one how's blah blah dead (laughs) by the fourth one though this is a czech joke by the fourth person dead she laughed ha everybody dead (laughs) then we're both laughing so that's czech humor you know (laughs) did you ever see your grandmother cry only once oh well actually she was the strongest person i know had ever ever known she would cry at Dr. Shivago every time. But I only ever saw her really cry from something painful once. And that was at the market and a, a man who was annoyed with her taking so long at the bread counter called her a wog and I didn't know what that name meant. I felt her stiffen. I knew something had happened. Didn't understand what it was. Could feel the energy but didn't understand we walked home and I just, she just had a tear come down and I knew that whatever that man had said to her was like a spotlight being shone on her so that everybody knew she didn't belong, that this wasn't her place. And it really 
hit me that, you know, you can wound someone so badly by just, with just a word. Yeah, I'll never forget that. And that's one of the real things in the novel that I've included. Did she wipe that tear away? She didn't wipe that tear away. And she had, you know, powder from her makeup and it just ran. Um, And I would have been looking up at her, you know, huge face. Yeah, it it wounded me too because this person that's so strong, um, how dare someone, how dare someone hurt her? One of the things about writing a novel is you can use your imagination to fill in the the blank parts of, of people's lives that you just don't know about. Absolutely. There's so much about her life you don't know about. You do know she was born just at the end of the First World War. Yes. What, what, do, you, what do you know? Uh, do you know anything about her life before she left Prague? I hardly know anything, Richard. Partly, I feel like that generation never spoke about themselves. Also, after the war, I felt like my grandparents just decided to only look forward. It was like the only way they were going to survive is to just look forward because behind was too painful. The other thing is I was a child and completely self-absorbed and you don't think to ask. In my world, my grandparents were just these beautiful people that were there for me. Um, Making I didn't, you apricot yes, dumplings. Yes, I know. Yeah. And playing cards with me and I didn't think of their life before I existed and it's not until they're gone and you're older and then you want to know everything, everything, and you can't. There are some relatives know a few things. There's dates and, and, and facts. I know when they were married. Um, I don't know why my grandma was forced to leave Prague and why her sister was forced to stay. There are stories that maybe she ran into a German guard and her name was taken down. Um, But, yeah, I've had to make up a lot of the book, and that was beautiful, actually, to weave a fiction history but with emotional truth. And I felt like that my grandparents were with me the whole time I was writing, and although I don't know all the facts, I feel like I might have got some of it right. There's a, there's a certain kind of truth that comes with what you imagine anyway. Yes. We do know this the thing. When you're seven, you don't know history. And so you don't know the huge roller coaster, the dizzying highs, the awful catastrophic lows of that place mm-hmm. that we went through in the, in, in the 20th century. You do know that she was part of – there was this – Huge gymnastics craze, believe it or not, in 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 it's never really gone away in in the in, in Bohemia has. then, which was the, an organisation called Sokol. Was was your grandmother a member of Sokol? She was, that? and the whole family were. And I do remember hearing about this because she wanted to be a physical education teacher and lead this gymnastics and teach children this gymnastics and she loved it and her and her sister performed it. And I mean these massive slets they were called, these, you know, thousands of kids doing the same gymnastics routine on the floor to the same music in unison. Um, It was huge and it was this sort of a strong mind in a strong body and every child has the same potential and, yeah, it, it... they loved it. It was big, and I know she was a head girl in in the Sokol. We do know that we don't know these facts about history. In 1938, there was the the famous Munich Agreement, where Britain and France pretty much sold out uh, part of Czechoslovakia to to Hitler. They handed yes. helped hand over a, a huge chunk of the country, um, which was largely populated by ethnic Germans, to 
to to Nazi Germany. They did, they they did that as as a result. And it was all the industry, the forests, rivers. It wasn't just land. It was like a, a big chunk of like the economy and the defensible land yes. and the armaments industry and all of that. Yes. So the the, the Czechs they never quite gotten over this, have they? I feel like that was. It's very understandable why, but that was the day that that Czechoslovakia turned its head east instead of west. They'd always been part of the west. This was a they, they, central Europe, and they were Prague is this city of great culture, education. I mean, a part of the west, was wealthy, absolutely. Yeah, all these things, yeah. um, this was a shock, also because everybody knew this wasn't going to stop Hitler. It was just a tiny pause. That's all it was. And they felt um, betrayed. And many people still feel that. I know my grandma certainly did. And so it was the day they turned their back on the West. I had this experience in 1990 there where someone overheard me speaking and they said, why did you do it? And I said, what are you talking about? Why did you do it? And then I knew what this person meant. He, mm. he was asking me as an English speaker why we sold them out in 1938 yes. <laughs> to, it, to Hitler. And I, I said, well, first of all, I'm not British, I'm Australian. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, my parents were kids when all this happened. But nonetheless, that's that's the feeling. It's there. strong. It really is strong. And um yeah, that bet- that sense of betrayal hasn't gone away. The other thing that's true at that, that time is that we see the Second World War as this triumph of good over evil in, from our Western perspective, yes. um, uh, where Hitler was defeated by the good the good guys. They see it differently. They see they had a good democracy. They had a good country that was destroyed by fascist power and then Stalinist. Absolutely, power. and then they were frozen in time, frozen, and you know that that famous sort of the kingdom of forgetting that time when everyone had to go to sleep, especially, you know, after 68 to in, into the 80s. It was a very dark time. So that being stuck, being frozen and forgotten by the world as well, I think they felt. You mentioned there your, your grandmother, grandmother's sister, uh, Vera. How, how, how close were they? They were so close. I mean, in the book I've made them twins. They weren't. They were only a year apart in ages, but they looked the same. Both have had a white streak in their hair. Both have the widow's peak, the same faces, the same gold and garnet earrings. They were the same so that when I met Vera again in 93, I was sitting with my grandma. It was quite overwhelming. I I mean, I wept because I hadn't seen my grandma since I was 16, but here she was, her sister, exactly the same. Well, the, the way same they streak spoke, of white hair, yes. like a dramatic, like yes. like Lady Frankenstein yes. streak of white hair. Yes. Wow. I know, I know. Everything was the same. The way they spoke, the way their mouths then turned, sort of almost touching their chins. The way, <laughs> um, you know, the 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 weight of the world upon them, their humour, the way they spoke, everything. They were so the same. What is amazing between there was a whole lot of love, but there was also this niggling resentment of who had it worse. There were often conversations of, but I had to leave and I knew no one. I cried myself to sleep and then, but I was stuck and we had the war and then, but we had the war too. So they would would argue about who had it worse. And in the end, I I think it's equal. They both suffered terrible grief and pain, one being completely banished forever, the other being stuck forever. So you you as you say, your grandmother left 
sometime around 38, 39? It, it was 38 because um, it was getting close. It was very hard to get out later. It was sometime the Munich Agreement had happened and it was sometime in that period of time where there was like a window and... Um, Before the Nazis invaded the rest of... Yes, of there was a window and right. there were, I know that there were an association in... Um, the UK helping Czech refugees find work and I know my grandma was helped and she found a job as a maid for a wealthy family in London. So she got out. Now, this was at a time when there was the famous kinder transport where yes. the British financier Nicholas Winton helped Jewish kids get I know. out. amazing. And, and, and save the lives of, I think it was more than 700 kids. Incredible. Amazing. But your mum, your grandmother wasn't Jewish, was she? But she, she wasn't. She Somehow got she got out. And there's stories that maybe her dad bought some papers illegally or knew someone and, and got some papers. He got her out. There was some very dire reason she needed to get out. She was in danger. That's all I know. So I've had to make it up in the book what I think might have happened. But I knew she had to get out. She was young and she couldn't go back. She was hoping that she could go back when the war ended. But of course, then we know that things rapidly changed in the Czechoslovakia. So you, you said she went to the UK. What did she do? How did well, she settle in? I just know that she was a maid she wouldn't have spoken English and it would have been terribly lonely and then had to live through the Blitz as well. So, you know, she, she experienced the war absolutely as well. I have no idea how she met my grandpa. I don't know how she survived that time. It must have been terrifying. Learning to speak English the whole yes, time too. and working and, and being away from everything you know, everything you love, and all you have is a little suitcase of things that you could pack, a set of clothes, a book, maybe a, a photo of loved ones, and that's it. Y your grandfather was British? He was British, yeah. And what was he? Was he? An, uh, what did he do? He was a toolmaker for Smith's Industries, and um, so that's sort of like an engineer almost. And during the war, he worked on important things to do with the war at Hendon Aerodrome. He's spoken about it a little bit. I think he was working on, they were trying to crack the autopilot system, which would have been vital. I mean, if they'd got it in time, it would have really helped at the end of the war. And I think America got it a couple of years after the war was finished. They cracked it. But he was working on that. I know people don't hate to talk about this with their grandparents, but could you see what attracted them to each other? I think my grandma would have been like nothing else my grandpa would have ever seen. Like she, um, <laughs> you know, she stood out. She was tall, striking cheekbones, bohemian completely, the widow's peak, everything. So check. Streak of white hair. Yes, streak right. of white hair, this booming accent. Um and a great cook as well. So um, he had it. He had it good. He'd go home for lunch because it was better than the food at um, Smith's. <laughs> so once the war was over in 1945, there's another brief window there. Three years yes. at the end of the war where they've sort of got a democracy again. Yes. Before there's a Stalinist coup d'etat and it's, then it's kind of Russians, Russia's pawn after that. Absolutely. But, but did they go back in that period? They did. And this is something, Richard, I never knew and I learned from my cousin and it absolutely blew me away because I had no idea. They went back, they were got, They wanted to stay and um, I think their first two sons might have even been born in that time in Czechoslovakia. So they had, apparently they had a little farm outside of Prague in a, in a region, you know, so maybe an hour away and um, 
my granddad especially wanted to stay because he loved everything Chechen. He 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 was a hardcore socialist for the workers, not not a communist. Just he really believed in the workers and making some uh, this place great. You know, he um he be- he he really wanted to stay, but then it was that choice. Then as 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 time went on, it was stay and stay forever. Now. Or leave or and leave never come back. And never come back. So again, my grandma was exiled by choice, but she made the decision for her sons and for the future. So they went back to Britain for they a while. They did, yeah. So why did they why did they choose to come to Australia? It's um, <laughs> I know that they regretted it because it was so far away from home, but they followed their sons out. So their sons were were grown and were all construction workers and there was so much work in Melbourne, Richard. It was like the land of plenty. They could pick and choose whatever they wanted. Um, so the total opposite of London. And they said, oh, come over, there's heaps of work. But for my grandpa, who was close to retirement, that wasn't the case. He did work for Holden for a short time and then found it more difficult to get work as he got older and ended up being a night watchman at a factory, which is um, quite something to go from sort of engineer working on um, autopilot to um, carrying a truncheon around and taking his own dinner to, to work. So, yeah, for them it was a hard transition again, a new place, another new place, very far away from Prague, very far away from London. But I'm grateful because of that I got to know them. Podcast, broadcast and online. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. When they came out here, your grandparents, how old were they when they, when they migrated? Look, they must have been... In their 50s? 70, yes, and I knew them in like late fifties. Oh, that's a hard point in life to yes. migrate in, isn't it? Very hard. I think too hard. I think they always felt it was a mistake, except for they get got to spend time with their grandkids, which was their life then. So they really didn't have much money, but I don't suppose then that was obvious to you. When there you were was, little. there was no money, Richard. They never owned a house. There was no McDonald's. We didn't go to the movies. There were none of those things. But what there was was time. So they would spend hours playing cards with us. And I've only just realised, because I've got nieces and nephews now, how tedious it can be to play cards with children. <laughs> but at the time, I thought they were having the most fantastic time. You know, they, he- they, they kept it from us very well. That they, they made us feel like it was the most joyous thing. It's all they wanted to do, play cards with us. We would help my grandma cook in the kitchen which I loved. She never wrote any recipes down and I wish she had because I can't make any of her food the same as she made it. Still, you say they saved up their coins. They did. And after however many years of stuffing... Three or four Three or four years. years of stuffing coins into jars, they could buy the cheapest flight back to Prague. Absolutely. So when they got back to Prague, though, and I know this happened quite a lot, were they like millionaires? Absolutely. And, Richard, what has been amazing is getting in touch with my cousin Martin after 25 years 
and hearing the other side of this journey. So I would, we would say goodbye to them at the airport and I, and, and then see them in eight weeks and they'd have check dolls and some presents and photos of their trip, but that's all. I never knew what the daily life was there. They would just arrive at the airport, be picked up by their, um, my grandma's sister and family, drive home and just continue everyday life in another flat <laughs> in Prague. <laughs> well, and exactly the same like that in Melbourne. Exactly. Right. And my cousin Martin said that the two sisters would just talk nonstop and it would drive him nuts. And so him and my grandpa would leave and go walking. And he said it was so funny because he said, your grandpa Bill, he was a very quiet man and he'd just smoke his pipe and I'd just talk away and, and rabbit on and we'd walk around Prague and that's his strongest memory. Could they arrive? with all these Western consumer goods, though, oh that they couldn't goodness. get there. You'd know, Richard, like denim. Mm. Denim was what everybody wanted. There'd be a whole suitcase of denim for, like, <laughs> the, the, the extended family. Dark dark denim was really in. <laughs> right. Was it top level, like Levi's? Top, was it, top or, level. Right. Oh, oh, actually. Or were you getting the, the cheaper, maybe, maybe I think a big my grandparents w? would save up for these <laughs> presents as well. So right. it would be probably big W. <laughs> yeah. It would be denim sheepskin slippers, matchbox cars for my cousins or any kids, cigarettes and alcohol. <laughs> so that was what they'd take over, two suitcases of all this stuff. But they were rich there and they could afford to, apparently they could afford to buy these cakes that regular citizens couldn't really afford on a regular basis and my grandma would buy heaps of them, which is not good because she was diabetic and she shouldn't have been eating them. <laughs> How about the other way around? Was it ever possible for her sister to come to Melbourne to visit? Um, she only came once in... This when that the, I remember. Was this when the Berlin Wall was still up? Or it up was it? up, right. and so it was very difficult to come. You had to apply a long time in advance. You had to leave guarantees, which were other family. Hostages, essentially. Hostages, yeah. yeah. Um, it was planned probably a year in advance. Um, and what did she make of it when she arrived in, in Melbourne with all its consumerism and uh, like all that abundance, you know? Exactly. Um, it was so. It was so amazing to me to see her face at the supermarket, I couldn't quite read it. Whether it was, oh, my God, this is what I've missed out on all my life, or, oh, my God, this is too much, too much choice, too much. How can anyone live like this? I think it was a bit of both. This realisation that she was old now and the whole world, the rest of the world, had passed her by while she was in the kingdom of forgetting asleep. She really believed some of the some of the stories that the West had heaps of homeless people everywhere, you know, on every street right. and that gun violence everywhere. Yes. Yeah. And so when she did come to realise that that wasn't really the case, um, shocked her deeply. Something inside her was broken and she at that point didn't enjoy the holiday and just wanted to go home. And I think she wanted to go home to what she knew, to the one TV station, to the one type of coffee, to her flat, to be safe because this was all too much. Too bewildering. So to go back to the kingdom of forgetting the, yes, she the beautiful wanted to. but grimy, now beautiful grimy, but grimy city. And, you know, she had a beautiful flat in the old city and something that no one could afford now. Um, and it, it was what she'd known for so long, and I totally understand that. 
There are people there now, particularly um, from working class families, who miss communism. And yes. the blue collar workers were paid more than white collar workers mm. under that. And they wouldn't be really required to work very much. That's the other thing as well. And they miss everyone being poor together, I think. I, there are a few positives that people overlook. One is I think with children, everybody had hand-me-downs and homemade clothes and there was no keeping up with the Joneses. There was no, oh, that kid's got Adidas, the new Adidas, and I don't, so I'm not good enough. And um, there was an equality there so that kids didn't feel this, like, um, you know, not good enough and having to keep up with fashion. That is freeing. Women's rights for work, equal work, equal pay, and I'm talking 50s and 60s, way ahead of anywhere else. And that was just through necessity. Everybody had to have a job to keep everything running. There was a freedom that my cousin had for a brief time before the indoctrination started. That was nobody locked their doors. There was very little crime. He ran around Prague by himself and... um, he remembers that as a beautiful time. Of course, later being indoctrinated and having to march and join Sokol and all this stuff that he hated. And um, there was the secret police too. The secret police yeah. and his mum was watched because she was in the Blacklight Theatre of Prague and travelled. So he was aware of all these things, but his freedom because of his grandma was, um, his, his childhood because of his grandma was quite free. And that was lovely to hear. So you you remember uh, his mother coming to Australia with the Blacklight Theatre of Prague. Um, can you just paint a picture of what, what you saw when you went and saw that show, that Blacklight Theatre show? I mean, I don't want to ever see it again because as a child, it is so magical. You totally believe the magic, which is um, fluorescent light being projected onto painted puppets that are being moved around by people dressed in, um, actors dressed in black, so you can't see them. And it is totally magical, but also dark. Like there are stories I remember of um, one of the things that happens in the on stage. A fisherman has caught a fish. He puts the fish in a bucket in his room and he goes to sleep, thinking the fish is dead. He's sleeping in his bed. The fish turns into a mermaid and she turns all the taps on and the room fills with water and he drowns. <laughs> that's the, you know, it, it, that's a very check. No, happy you know, But I, I, yes. I loved it. Yeah. It's it, totally magical. And then that my auntie, she's not my auntie, she's my grandma's niece, but I called her auntie, is one of these actors, one of these dancers, and we'd get to go backstage and they'd come to my grandma's house and they were young and alive and they'd dance to the Rolling Stones and they were just the most uh, alive, magical people I've ever met. And it stayed with me, this... um this energy that they had. This aunt or mother's cousin or what you who was performing with the Blacklight Theatre. Yes. Did she, want to, did she consider staying in Melbourne when the company toured? This is another thing, Richard, that I never knew and um, it makes sense now. As a child, I was picking up on things, this tension that she had, her on the phone crying, ringing home. I never knew, though, that my grandma had organised it all. She was going to defect that night at our house when they had the party and she couldn't do it because it meant leaving her son behind. And um, I never knew. And, and the worst thing that my cousin has taken from that time is he is convinced that he ruined his mum's life because she didn't stay here. And I've tried to tell him, Martin, 
She had no money. She didn't speak English. She probably would have worked in a factory or as a cleaner. She wouldn't have been a dancer and she would have missed you. She went back, had two more children, lived a good life and it wasn't long until the Rolling Stones were coming to play in her city and she was there. So she only had to hold on for a short time before she got the freedom. Was this Blacklight Theatre trip being monitored in Australia by the secret police, <laughs> the STB? Absolutely. They used to joke, Peter, our manager, and they'd... Um, the manager. The manager. And right. he was actually a spy. They would all be taken to the Victoria Hotel and locked in, in basically. Locked uh, in their hotel rooms. Yes, right. yes. And then in the morning <laughs> let out. So to get permission to come to my grandma's house was um, you know, not going to happen. So... This really happened, Richard, and it's kind of bad, but they got the manager a little bit drunk on St Kilda Beach and left him to sleep in the sun and he got cooked <laughs> and um, had to go to hospital and everybody was very pleased by this. So they got a night off and they got to come to my grandma's house, but this was the night it was all meant to happen. Oh, right. And she didn't, she couldn't do it. And I totally understand because she chose love. So, yes. So, you were there that night in I that was party there that night. When, you're, when she was supposed to defect. And I never knew, but my cousins t- said this is, was all happening and now I completely understand what was going on. There was. Did that add an element of wildness to the party? Absolutely. The party was wild. I mean, I've never seen my grandma dance. Her, her beehive even let loose, you know, and she had long hair coming down. <laughs> Probably Everybody, someone's eye out if you weren't careful. Yes. But I remember the furniture being moved and everyone kicking off their shoes and a pile of shoes in the corner and just... The wild dancing. It's a great memory. So there's 89, 1989, the year of European miracles, where one by one all the old communist regimes fell over in Central and Eastern Europe. And in Prague, it was particularly glorious. There was the Velvet Revolution, peaceful revolution. Those old decrepit uh, communist dinosaurs were thrown out and replaced by this lovely man, this playwright. An artist, an incredible man, Václav Havel. He was. Do you, what? What are your? What, what did your grandparents do while that was happening? Were they watching it on TV? Oh, were they alive? So excited! Say? Yes, they were alive, and they were. I think. I think just um, in shock. No one ever thought it could happen. People have been waiting so long and and let down so many times. But suddenly, my cousin's free. He can travel. You know, the only. People, I think, that maybe had a hard time with a new transition were the, the these grandmas that had these flats, suddenly rent went up, suddenly it was a new regime they had to get used to, even though it was a great thing, you know, um, they were free too. Because they'd been the managers all this time. They'd actually been keeping the show on the road, despite the shortages. I absolutely, I absolutely believe that grandmas ran Eastern Europe. I mean, I know they did Prague. Um, grandmas were the child carers because every adult had to have a job. Even if you uh, wanted to stay at home and look after your children, you couldn't. So grandparents looked after children, you know, and this is a universal tale of the whole of Eastern Europe. Um, Grandmothers got food on the table. Grandmothers took kids to school. Grandmothers wheeling and dealing on the black market to get toilet paper when no one could get toilet paper. I mean, they held everything together. They kept the world going and nobody knows their story and I wanted them to be honoured in this book. 
There's a story I've got of one guy who uh, wanted to take part in, in a protest in 1968 against the Soviet invasion, but he was told he couldn't by his grandmother who said, no, you've got to go to Wenceslas Square on this day and you've got to, you've got to pick up some gherkins from a guy, a farmer who's come in who's always been good to me and he's, always, he's very reliable. And so you, you go to your protest after you, you pick up the gherkins. It. That, happened, that happened all the time. <laughs> and so I suppose for those grandmothers, then suddenly there's real estate agents and young tech people mm. in their neighbourhood saying, well, we're running things around here. I, I know mm. that instantly my great aunt Vera, her rent went up so, so much that she had to move instantly. So she'd had this flat forever. So that was a big shock. Then smaller and smaller flats further and further out. And I think that's continued. Prague now, it's still so beautiful but tech people don't live in the old city anymore. They can't. It's it, it it's really Airbnbs and, and for tourists. Um, and that makes me a little bit sad. And it's why I didn't want to go back, Richard, to, to for this book, um, because I wanted to remember what it was like through my grandparents' eyes, through my cousin's eyes, and what it was like before when it was dirty and, <laughs> you know, run down. And, um, no tourists. Yeah, no tourists. After your grandparents died, did you get to keep any of their stuff? It's a terrible story, Richard. My grandpa was living in a council flat at that time, and when he died, um, some council cleaners came in and, and, and just threw a lot of stuff away. None of it was worth any money. The tapestry of Prague is gone. My brother and I got there and went through all the bins, and I found my grandpa's gold watch. Was my, it a bin? Yes. It was wrapped in cloth. It was just the face, and it didn't work. Um, and are you wearing that right now? I am wearing it. I wear it all the time. I've worn it ever since. Um, is I, it a really old watch? It is. I mean, it was given to him in 1960, I think, so, yeah, um, for 25 years' service of um, Smith's Industries. Was that all you got from the bin? I got uh, my grandma's, a few porcelain bowls, a, a music box. I've got her ruby ring, and that's all. I, oh, a pack of cards, Richard, which doesn't sound like much, but when I bring them to my nose, I can smell that flat. They still smell like warm pipe tobacco and my grandma's cooking, even after all this time. So... I played cards every day while I was writing this book with those cards. I played patience to, to remember the flat, to remember being with them. Yeah. How did you get your grandfather's watch fixed? <laughs> so I was young and I had no money and also, Richard, I was a goth. <laughs> so I went into this um, watch repair shop and I said, can you fix this watch? And the man the watch repairer looked me up and down and said, I'm so sorry to ask, but I think this watch is stolen and I might have to like call the police. And I said, no, no, turn it over. My grandpa's name is on the back. And I showed him ID and he said, I'm so sorry, but this watch is quite rare inside. The mechanisms are gold, not only the outside. And um, it cost $400 to fix back in 1992. And that's a lot of money. It was a lot of money for me. I pay, He let me pay it off. It probably took me a month to pay it off. But it's been going strong ever since. It hasn't missed a beat. So um, I'm so grateful that I have it. Yeah. Tell me how you got floored by the jar of pickles in the car park one day. The way this novel started is, is 
one of those random things. I was in Northland Shopping Centre, which is an awful, awful place. I couldn't find the right exit to the car park. Suddenly I'm standing in front of this European deli that I've never seen before. I went in, right in front of me, some Czech gherkins that I haven't seen since I was 16, dusty. I rang my brother and he said, buy all of them. (laughs) There were eight jars. I carried them out, (laughs) found my car. I had these two bags. They were $2.99 each. God knows how long they'd been sitting there. Um, also, you, what did the guy think when you wanted to buy eight no, bottles I think of he was check. happy. He's right. like, they've been there for 20 years, so <laughs> I'm glad to get rid of them. Um, I got to my car eventually, found the exit. I opened one jar warm. I took a bite and I just um, started to weep. The sense memory from that gherkin was so strong. All I wanted to do was drive to that flat, my first home. Drive, drive run up the stairs. I wanted to knock on the door and I wanted my bubby and grandpa to be there. And I wanted to sip with them the ritual of lunch with the Kaiser roll and the sausage and the cheese and a gherkin on the side. And I just wanted to say, please tell me everything now about you. I know nothing and I'm sorry that I know nothing, but I want to know now. I couldn't go to the flat. They're they're gone. I, I, I drove to the Faulkner Cemetery crying the whole way hadn't been there for a decade, I sat with them and I said, okay, let's, let's do this now. Let's, please stay with me. I want to know. And I started writing that day and I thought it would be a short story about gherkins. <laughs> you know, the, the, the ritual of the gherkins, me finding the jar of gherkins, them saving their coins in a jar of gherkins, an old jar of gherkins to fly home. But it just kept coming and it was a joy, and they've been with me ever since. They haven't left, and they, I feel like even though I don't know everything, I got some of it right, maybe. Hearing you tell this story, do you know what I think, you know what I'm hearing from this? I'm hearing a classic Central European folktale. You yes. were in this godless wasteland, <laughs> and suddenly there's a magic deli that appeared that had these impossibly precious goods. I know. That you, you got all of them. And they, they were magical, magic Perkins who brought your grandparents back to life. Absolutely. And that's, can that's I tell tale. you something else? The deli has now gone. Oh, really? Maybe it was never there. Maybe it was never there. <laughs> I'd never seen it before, but it has gone. <laughs> and this is the hard thing to talk about. This is the really hard thing to talk Was it hard to finish writing about your grandparents? It was. I, I was scared that they would go away. Um, I didn't want a, them to go. It's been a very reclusive writing experience. I just wanted to be with the work every day, five hours. I didn't want to see people. I wanted to stay at home with the work. Um, So it was a year and a half of this solid effort. But they haven't left me, and now also people are sharing their stories on the road of their grandparents. It's been beautiful. Last night, some uh, beautiful Czech people came to my event and just shared their stories about their grandparents and the food and that was lovely and we all cried and um, so I'm getting much more than I'm giving it's 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 a it's a reciprocal thing that happens and it's beautiful so I am glad I finished it I am glad it's out there and that people can share my grandma's story but also bring their own story to the work it's been so lovely speaking with you thank you so much been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. 
For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.